What is up, everybody? Welcome to the DFS MVP podcast. I'm your host, TJ Hernandez, here with my co-host, Matt Savoca. This is our seventh season of the DFS MVP podcast, episode 156. If you're new to this podcast, we're strategy-based DFS podcast. Uh, During the season, we give you what you expect. We go over uh, our favorite values every week and go over a theory segment that really helps people get really good at this game we call DFS. During the preseason, we do things a little bit differently. We dive into uh, one or two theory segments really deep to get you prepared for the season. This week, we took listener questions. We got a lot of good topics to cover. Uh, Before we get into that, if you haven't signed up for the DFS subscription yet, you can get a 10% discount by using the promo code DFSMVP or if you haven't signed up for prize picks yet, if you're a new user, you can go to 444.com slash prize picks and get details on how to get a sub for just $20. Once you get access to that, be sure you sign up for our members only discord. Uh, that'll give you access to all of our DFS writers, especially uh, Tim Talmadge and Pat James right now who are do- doing our uh, preseason articles. So preseason action kicking off. If you're watching this right now, um, pretty much right now uh so get in the discord every preseason slate and they'll be in there chatting about preseason uh before we get into all of the dfs stuff today i want to talk a little bit about a game that matt have have been playing a lot matt and i've been playing a bunch that's the uh underdog mania best ball tournament if you haven't played best ball yet uh the leagues are draft set it and forget it there's no lineup setting there's no trades no waivers uh you can still get a $10 uh, deposit bonus and a $25 um, from underdog by going to 444.com slash underdog. That's number four, F-O-R, the number four. And as I mentioned, that $25 is equivalent to one of those best ball mania two tournaments, three and a half million dollars in the prize pool, $1 million going to first. And they actually just switched it over to uh, fast drafts only now. So you got to sit down and draft old school style. Uh, That's right. 30, yeah, yeah. So now it's really getting interesting because uh, I think the people that haven't done them yet and are going to start, you know, start getting their their last little jabs at hoping to win a million dollars that haven't played all year. I think you're going to see some really bad lineups. And I, I think there's probably um, there's probably an edge to drafting these last couple of weeks where everybody has to draft fast just because it's hard to get your stacks in and, and stuff like that. But um, speaking of, of stacks, I mean, one of the things that is cool about best ball in the tournament specifically is that uh, you can really apply a lot of um, DFS strategy topics. So I think one thing that Matt and I have been talking about here is that um, you, you need to figure out a way to get unique, um, but it's hard to do that player-wise because pretty much everybody that has an ADP is being drafted in every draft. So at the end of drafts, there are some opportunities to get guys that like don't have an ADP or just aren't being drafted often. Like James Robinson and Logan Thomas last year, they were in less than 10% of uh, lineups. They just weren't drafted 90% of the team. So Matt, thinking on, on that line of thought for best ball, who are some guys at the end of best ball drafts that don't have an ADP or you see not being drafted in, in a lot of your uh, best balls that you've been taking stabs at? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at this time of year, we're getting buzz out of camps about certain players who might be popping. And in general, we just want to use this part of the draft, the 17th, 18th round, especially if we don't have any structural things to worry about with differentiating our lineups from the rest of the pack. So there are a couple of ways to go about this. Obviously, young talents who are drafted on day one or day two of the NFL draft or maybe in their first or second year. Obviously, we've had some huge breakouts of not just first-round picks at the receiver position over the last few years. A.J. Brown comes immediately to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can always find players who we aren't really talking about their rookie year until they make a splash in those first few weeks. Um, the other way to go about it is to find prolific offenses that don't necessarily target the main targets in their offense as much as other teams. And the king of this is actually Tom Brady. I looked at, uh, I was just doing a little bit of research today in looking at expected fantasy points uh, via PFF and fantasy points in general to uh, players on offenses that are below the third weapon on the team. So excluding Mm -hmm. the top three options. And obviously Tom Brady is up near the top of the NFL in total expected fantasy points. So it's not surprising to see him at the top, but he far and away since 2019 has the most fantasy points to fourth options 
and below. Uh, the old oh. saying, Tom Brady doesn't care who he throws to, yeah. is somewhat true. Mm-hmm. So I love taking these late-round Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, I know Giovanni Bernard is sort of getting an ADP uh, after some preseason buzz, but you can still find players like O.J. Howard and Cameron Brait being essentially forgotten about. And they're going to get snaps. They're going to be on the field for an offense that's going to be scoring a lot of touchdowns, at least we project. Uh, another offense that certainly fits that bill uh, – the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, Patrick yeah. Mahomes targets his main options, Kelsey and Hill, at a huge percentage. So he does not fit that category. But we really expect someone to be stepping up. Someone really needs to step up in that Kansas City passing game. And not all of them have an ADP. Late round pick Cornell Powell, Powell as well as Byron Pringle, are often overlooked, even in the 18 round drafts. So I'm fine taking shots there. Uh, another few names to think about the Bengals, Auden Tate. Uh, if anything happens to any of the big three in Cincinnati, we could see a much larger work share uh, workload for Auden Tate. And uh, a couple of rookies here, Immer Smith-Marset out of Minnesota. Now, that's a deep track right there, but uh, he's got the requisite size uh, out of Iowa. Uh, apparently, he's making a little bit of buzz at camp. Maybe the Irv Smith hype that a lot of people are talking about is misplaced, and Immer Smith-Marset takes that number three receiving option because certainly someone could could step into that role in Minnesota. And finally, I'll leave you with two day two picks that aren't really getting a huge amount of buzz, uh, but they're very fast and they're on offenses that we expect to succeed generally. That's Anthony Schwartz, day two pick from the Browns, and Tutu Atwell, a small speedster that may not have a huge year one role unless, say, Deshaun Jackson gets injured. And um, I don't know about you, TJ. I've heard that that before, that Deshaun Jackson gets injured. <laughs> yeah, he's missed, missed a couple games. <laughs> So uh, yeah, there's a, there's a short list for you. That's not the only people I'm taking at the ends of drafts, but those are people that I've been target- targeting pretty consistently. Um, I really like the Tutu call a lot. Um, I think he can just end up being their, their starting slot guy. Like you said, I mean, Deshaun just doesn't stay on the field a lot, and um, he's a field stretcher, and and I think Tutu could fit that offense really well. Um, a couple guys that I've been looking at, I mean, I'm kind of on the same line of thought as you. Like, we can't project – 17 weeks perfectly obviously it's hard to project one week but in best ball there's nothing we could do about injuries or or fixing our team right so the way to get unique is to you know target some of these guys that you're sure they might be zeros um but this tournament is set up that to win the million dollars obviously you have to get through each round you have to win your league first but to win the million dollars you have to win week 17 and you're playing i think it's uh, 85 other lineups in week 17 and a lot of you guys are going to have the same players because the teams with the same players are probably those are going to be the best teams that make it through. Um, so if you have one of these guys, you know, like you said, a, a two to Atwell or, um, you know, fourth option on whatever team you're looking at, uh, th- if they blow up in week 17, a, a lot uh, can be determined by those players. Um, a couple of guys quickly. Uh, I like Des Fitzpatrick, the, the rookie for the Titans. I think the I think one of the biggest uh, hedges this year, I know people want to like talk about handcuff running backs. I think a really good hedge on the Titans, if something were to happen to Derrick Henry, is just their passing game in general. Um, they're a super efficient passing team, and I think if Henry gets hurt, I don't think they're the same offense. I think they suddenly turn into like a 65% passing team, uh, and they have a shallow receiver core. I mean, we were all talking about AJ Brown being like a 30% target share guy uh, before Julio went there. And it's because they don't have any pass catchers. Um, And Julio's had problems staying on the field. So uh, I know Josh Reynolds is there, but does Fitzpatrick is, is a nice rookie uh, that I think could get some work by year's end. Um, Drew sample. uh, He was a second round tight end a couple years ago. I just like spots where people are super hyped on this offense. Right. But if we think they're going to score a lot of points, but it's an ambiguous situation, which obviously it is just if we look at their, the three ADPs you talked about on Tate, I mean, somebody might have random splash games. If they're going to be throwing as much as we think they do, it's just not going to be those three Mm -hmm. guys. Even if those three guys each see 20% of targets, 40% of the targets still have to go somewhere else. Right. Um, So that's interesting. And then Hayden Hurst is one that I've been interested in ever since the Falcons um, drafted Kyle Pitts, because everyone thinks Kyle Pitts is automatically going to be Gronk or better. Um, 
That doesn't happen Wait, often. With <laughs> you're, he's not going to be Gronk or better? I don't think he's going to be Gronk or but better. But his ADP his, says his, he is. I know. I know. Uh, but I'm not into that at all. And again, that is a team that they don't have a lot of pass catchers after Calvin and after Kyle Pitts. Kyle Pitts is a rookie. Um, Arthur Smith is there now who ran a ton of two tight end sets in, in Tennessee. They're second in the league in two tight end sets. And they paid Hurst uh, a couple years ago, last year. So, I mean, I think he could still get work. And if Pitts doesn't end up being the rookie phenom that everybody's hoping, like Hurst can still have a role. Uh, it's unlikely that he's going to be like the tight end top 10 tight end on the season, but he can have some spike games and give semi-consistent production. So those are some interesting ones there. Um, just wanted to give you guys some, some, a couple best ball tips because that tournament is wrapping up pretty soon. Uh, go to 444.com slash underdog. That's number four, F-O-R, the number four to get details on the deposit bonus. Let's get into it today, Matt. Uh, we sent out a tweet yesterday, got some really good listener questions from Twitter and from our uh, Discord subscribers. Uh, so we're, we're going to have some fun with these. Uh, we'll just jump right into it. JDeck89 from Twitter, the first question. I'm in a 12-man FanDuel league where each week you pay $3. Two of that goes to uh, two of that $3 goes to the weekly pot, and the winner wins $24. $1 goes to the end of your pot, which pays first $162 and second $54. So basically, they're just playing a weekly 12-man league, and uh, it's like a it's it's like a small tournament every week, and then at the end of the year, people get a big payout. I like this question because I actually get a lot of questions similar to this. Um, we're kind of in our own little bubble where the games that we play we think that's what everybody plays a lot of people play like these these friend leagues casual players friends leagues smaller random leagues with friends um and i, I do think it's it's fun to think about them because they they aren't cash games but they aren't big tournaments either so so how are you thinking about playing a a 12-man weekly tournament uh with with friends on fanduel well, first of all, what a great way to hone your skills just mm -hmm. with low stakes in terms of having to think in terms of what the size of the field is, what the rest of the field is going to be doing. But understanding that with just 12 teams, you're going to be leaning on projections much, much more yep. than ownership. And you're not going to concern yourself much with what other teams are doing, although at the end of the day, it is important to consider whatever one's going to be doing. So in this situation with that kind of league, especially with FanDuel scoring, I am going to be leaning heavily on running backs. Just when you look at uh, simulated weeks or simulated seasons, running backs tend to get top 12 flex weeks more than wide receivers. Now, obviously, we're talking about the week-to-week -week variance of a game that we're going to go in to all season. But I do think that I would lean on running backs more heavily when you can. Obviously, the each week is going to be dictated differently. But uh, just in terms of getting those top three weeks overall, that's really what we're striving for here since all that money is at the top. So you got to shift your focus just a little bit. Yeah, I, I think um, kind of a, a, a loose rule that I have that, that isn't based in, in math or research but has, has worked in it totally well for me is that in in smaller stakes leagues that are um under 100 man uh size you can for the most part lean towards a cash game build um you're going to usually have enough upside if you if you understand dfs values properly and you're using something like the 44 lineup generator um and and can tweak those optimal lineups to to fit what works for your week for FanDuel always getting a running back in there. I think um, even in tournaments, half the time winners and Sunday million are using, using a running back. So in something this small, I think you should always be using a running back in the flex, but just leaning towards um, leaning towards the cash build in these with like maybe a slight slant towards stacking. And, and I don't mean even forcing stacks. I just mean if, if a quarterback and a wide receiver are the top values at their position, their teammates, um, I'm not necessarily going to shy away from that because you are getting a little bit of, um, of of uh upside there and and this obviously favors upside but you don't need a ton of upside to beat 12 people um and i, I think i on kind of a, a tangent here i i've seen some talk going around this year leading up to to dfs season about um how sharp cash games have become and and how hard they are to beat. and i agree with that um and the people uh, some dfs touts have been saying 
you know, new players might be better off not playing cash games at all. And I disagree with that because that assumes that every new player is, is going in and playing, you know, maxing every buy-in level of head-to-heads. I agree. A brand new player should not be playing 150 head-to-head games tomorrow. Um, you're probably going to get smoked. I think there's a lot of value in playing in these 12-man leagues with your friends, playing in small 50-50s, small double-ups, learning the how value works in DFS. Um there's bad players at in, in a $1 double up. There's a lot of dead money. Um, maybe as much as any tournament save, maybe like the Millie makers or something like that, but it's going to give you the foundation to understand how DFS values work, how points are scored by each position, how salary changes uh, really affect lineup construction. And you do it for um, a, a low buy-in, a low cost and, you learn a lot really fast. And I think if you're just jumping into tournaments, it's really easy to not, I'm sure people are working their butt off even casual players, but if you don't understand the foundation of value in DFS, I don't know that you're going to jump in and automatically be a great tournament player. And it's really easy to write off and just say, well, it's a tournament play. That's okay. Or I was stacking him. Like you don't, you don't get the, uh, a solid foundation. Sure. Everyone shouldn't be playing you know, max buy-in cash games like we are, but um, maybe eventually they should. It's You want to explore all the game formats because you have to figure out what kind of player you are. Just because the tournament has a lot of money or there might be a softer field, it might not fit how you think. It's a, it's a different game. So I don't agree with that. Um, there's a lot of people that are making some smart arguments for it, um, but I think it's, it's short-sighted and unfair to say that new players should or shouldn't do anything. So I like this question a lot because it does make you kind of think outside the box. So uh, JDeck89, thank you for that one. Uh, double whammy here from great Twitter handle, Dirt Balls, and even better Twitter handle, SalPal2, our, our producer, Sal Steph now, Steph now here at 444. Uh, Dirt Balls says, is a quarter back running back wide receiver wide receiver stack viable and then sal asks if we can explain onslaught stacks and when they're best deployed so kind of the same question i think dirt balls put this here i cannot say the name with a straight face i think he included his because it included a running back with wide receivers um but just overall i mean when you're going into tournaments how are you how and when are you deploying onslaughts and what type of big stacks do you like using matt yeah, and really the the general rule is the larger the tournament, the larger the stack I'll allow. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we should say everyone in who has just a passing knowledge of NFL DFS and correlations with certain positions knows about these bigger correlations that we've talked about. But I think one of the one of the big correlations that people are still kind of spooked by is this quarterback running back correlation because in general over the last few years. I would say last six, there has been a generally negative correlation, but there are, we've seen that correlation grow weaker in general, and it also has more variance week to week. So there are some teams and some superstar running backs even who have positive correlations over the last two seasons with their quarterbacks. The first running back that comes to mind that fits that bill is Derrick Henry. He's positive cor po positively correlated with quarterback Ryan Tannehill. So we shouldn't be scared about situations where uh, Tennessee is expected to blow up offensively, we could play both players. Now, the wide receiver, wide receiver add-on to that, that is really situational based on the, the game you're selecting here. Obviously, a wide receiver and a runback option on the other team is pretty much allowed in any game stack that we think is going to be uh, certainly low-owned. There's situations we would do that, but we're not necessarily seeing weeks in the NFL where three flex players and their quarterback all hit their ceiling. And really we want um, as many players as possible to hit their ceiling. Cause that's how we get first place in these tournaments. Yeah. So you really have to come up with a pretty good thought experiment to why all these players are hitting on the exact same team. And if you can tell yourself that story, then go ahead and do it. That's why every, Every week is different in the NFL. I'll give you a great example here. I believe it was week eight, Chiefs versus Jets. Uh, we were collectively, as a DFS community, kind of overthinking the situation. I remember there was uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was going to be uh, projected for high ownership. Le'Veon Bell, revenge game talk, was a flutter. 
meanwhile, all the usual suspects dominated that game, as we would, would expect. Mahomes went off for multiple touchdowns. Hill had two touchdowns. Kelsey had a touchdown. And guess what? The auxiliary passing game did just fine. Demarcus Robinson had a touchdown. Miko Hardman had a touchdown. So that leads me right into onslaught slack. It's onslaught stacks. There are very, that's the best part of it. There are very obvious places to use them. It's just about the game selection and when you use them in tournaments. So the more people in that tournament, the more I'm going with more from the same team if I truly believe in that game environment. Yeah, and on the um, on the league wide level, I, I I think that the quarterback uh, running back correlation is like point zero one. I think it's like basically zero, or like negative point zero one. It's basically no correlation. Um, and obviously, people are thinking in terms of, of high correlation of going back like three or four years when uh, uh, sites like four for four and and some other sites were putting out some really good like correlation matrix matrices. They were on the league wide level. Um, and that is valuable. But like you said, if, if we're finding teams that are um, going, we think are, are in smash spots, if it's the only team that is able to drop five or six touchdowns in, in a game that week, pretty good chance, you know, they're, they're starting running back. gets a couple and whatever a, a receiver gets a couple, obviously the quarterback's going to be involved in that. Um, we actually uh Little, little teaser here might have a tool coming for that at four for four for each team. So keep an eye out for that. Um, but to the specific uh, question first, the, the quarterback, running back, wide receiver, wide receiver, I think four or maybe five in some situations is the most you want in a game. But I, I track winning stacks from the Sunday million and, and the DraftKings millionaire um, every week and did it for every one last year. And we saw a lot of stacks on, on both websites with four players in the game. Um, but the fourth player was usually an opposing wide receiver. So I think if you're going to go quarterback, wide receiver, running back, um, you want the opposing wide receiver. Or if you're going to go four players from one game, you want the opposing wide receiver. We know opposing pass games are correlated. Um, quarterbacks don't necessarily play better when they're behind, but pass catchers do often get big games in garbage time garbage time for wide receivers is very real um so opposing wide receivers is a very good stack to throw in um just some quick numbers on those stacks from last year winning DraftKings millionaire teams averaged five correlated players 11 used a secondary stack three used a third stack so that doesn't mean five correlated players from the same game but maybe three players in their main stack a second stack that was like a running back defense which was used a lot and then once in a while maybe like a, another wide receiver opposing wide receiver so it makes sense we're, we're just trying to like minimize how many times we have to be right we're not trying to get everything right so instead of trying to find every single one-off player that goes off in each game pick two or three games that you love pick a couple small correlations from those games Keep going with your primary stacks that you know work, your quarterback, wide receiver, opposing wide receiver, maybe throwing a running back in there as well. Um, and on FanDuel, because it isn't a as volume dependent as DraftKings because of the yardage bonuses, because of, of full PPR, um, it's more game script and scoring dependent. So we see even more correlated lineups on FanDuel. Um, the average winners used six correlated players, 14 used a secondary stack as opposed to 11 in the millionaire winners. Um, and five used a third stack. No winning Sunday million team last year used less than four correlated players. Um, five used a running back in their primary stack. So again, right, throwing running back is very viable. Um, and again, running back defense or like running back and opposing wide receiver were really popular opposing stacks. Um, one thing I do want to throw in about the the size of the tournaments, I, I talked to um, Mike Leone and Joe Holka quite a bit about this. They both play similar games to us. They like to play higher stakes, smaller field stuff. And, and I think what you said is true. The, the bigger the tournament, the more correlation. That makes sense, obviously. We just went over it in the Sunday uh, Million and the Millionaire. But they kind of started talking last year and got me on this that, like, if you're in a 200-man field with a lot of sharp players – everyone is kind of doing the same research as you. We all kind of know the same thing. So you need to minimize, you want to minimize the spots. You need to be right in even more because you're going to, it's going to be hard to outsmart the best players in the world. Um, so they've been leaning toward like these onslaughts more in these smaller fields, which you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like sure, that wide receiver, that second wide receiver that the question was about in the lineup, that might limit your upside against a million 
people or 155,000 people playing for a million dollars, however many it is. But if you're only playing against 150, you don't need a, a 0.001% lineup in terms mm-hmm. of like your overall outcome. A 90th percentile outcome might beat that field. So if you can just get a couple of games heavily onslaught in these smaller fields, um, it's actually interesting. And, and it's uh, it's a concept that I, I started implementing late in the year and and had some success with it. And uh and we'll definitely be using a lot more uh, this year. So shout out to friends uh, Leone and Holka who have been guests here before. Uh, let's move on to question three. F. Amarante TFJ from Twitter, a.k.a. Frank Amarante. Amarante? Amarante. I don't know, Frank. But <laughs> a four for four scribe. Uh, shout out to him. Check out some of the good articles he's been putting out on players over at four for four. Um Week one question, so we're not going to dive super into it, but it'll be fun. Quick and easy. What stacks do you expect to be a contrarian in week one? Well, it's kind of funny because we expect to be contrarian, so we, it's always difficult to guess ownership since that's what being contrarian is all about yeah. Uh, yeah. before going into it. But I, I'm looking at uh, some of these mid-tier Vegas lines, and three teams do kind of uh, – make their way to the top for me. I think the Cincinnati Bengals could be a sneaky pick. They're playing the Minnesota Vikings, who were middle of the road defensively through most of last season, uh, a high team expected fantasy point total last year. Um, and assuming Burrow kind of picks up where he left off, uh, that's a team that could uh, just score more than people are expecting right off the bat. Same with the Jacksonville Jaguars, really the same story there. A rookie quarterback who, now I might actually be wrong about this. I, there could be a lot of uh, Clemson fans who are really excited to play Trevor Lawrence in his first NFL game. But the way I'm thinking about it right now, at least a few weeks before the season, is people are going to be afraid. They're going to want to see it from Trevor Lawrence before they invest in it in their lineup. And we can get ahead of the curve there because we're pretty sure this is an above average to way above average prospect. Um, In fact, it would be surprising if he weren't. Um, The next one I think we could go to is the Indianapolis Colts. Um, They're going to be playing a Seattle team and they're going to need at least 26 points really to be in in this game, which means those points are going to have to come from somewhere. And it looks like Quentin Nelson, their star guard and their quarterback, Carson Wentz, are trending, at least trending towards playing week one. Again, that's another one where I think people are going to want to see it to believe it, and maybe we can get ahead of the curve there. Again, we'll get into some much more specific team stacks that we really like and values all over the place when we get into week one. But just thinking about the slate right now, that's uh, three teams that stand out to me. Yeah, I, I, I do think there is some um, beyond just like this specific week one. I do think there's some general theory to, to draw out of this question because obviously week one is, is when we have least information and we haven't seen rookies in action and we're guessing which teams are going to be good. And, and um, there's just a lot of you. You could make the argument to go really crazy um, in week one in terms of being contrarian. And you still want to be smart. Vegas is still pretty sharp. Um, but there, there's a couple of things. I, I think one thing that I really like to do in week one, if if you're someone that plays best ball or plays redraft and you've been drafting since March, like, like I have, and I think you have Matt, we've been doing a ton of research on the rookies or guys that are expected to break out. I like targeting those guys early in DFS season because if they're underrated in redraft, people aren't going to be excited about them week one, but we've been working our butts off trying to figure out who's going to be good this year. So people that we might call, you know, sleepers in redraft, I I like using a lot um, as contrarian plays in week one, but as far as the team level goes, uh, which the question was, I did a, a, study maybe two years ago and I would guess the numbers still hold up um, because I I looked at a pretty large sample size but essentially it takes Vegas about three to four weeks to catch up to implied totals on the high end so basically if if we look at weeks one two and, and three the teams in that top tier of scoring um like the the 28 29 30 point implied point totals Vegas doesn't get those as right as they usually do throughout the season. So the second tier of, of scoring, like those teams projected in the 24 to, to 26 point range early in the season is when those teams are most likely to be the highest scoring teams. And I think that's really actionable information because we can attack that middle tier of um, implied point totals. And, and we know that ownership is, is driven by implied implied totals there's a really strong correlation with ownership and a team's implied point totals so 
if we think those 24 to 26 point projected teams are going to be lower owned than those are the ones I'm looking at. So Chiefs, Bills, Titans, they all have the highest implied totals week one. Probably will be the highest owned teams, especially the Chiefs and the Bills. Um, but go right below them. 49ers, Packers, Vikings, Falcons, Seahawks, Cardinals, Jaguars are all teams projected for more than 24 points, less than 27 um 49ers are super interesting just because they're really ambiguous and people aren't going to know what to make of them you mentioned the Bengals, and i think people will be on the Bengals side of the ball even though they are the underdogs so vikings are a really interesting team for me especially if you go with like some ancillary pieces like an irv smith or even just like whoever you think you know if matt thinks he has knows who their third pass catcher <laughs> is going to be um go with them um falcons are a team everyone's gonna if people are, are rostering falcons it's probably going to be calvin or, or pitts um so yeah just those games in general i think are really really good ways to um to kind of go after week one just instead of just looking at exactly what we have this week looking at that second tier uh i think has a lot of value uh so thank you frank for the question Question four from Discord, um, Andy7 in Discord. This is an interesting one, and I, I'm curious what you have to say about it because I've really never even thought about this. Are there any rule changes that you expect to make a difference for offenses this year? Andy says he's specifically thinking about how taunting and low blocks um, called outside tackles have been called in preseason. Like, are, are offenses going to get thwarted or are, is scoring going to be down? Anything you, you got there? Because uh, I, I don't have a good answer for him. Oh, I I just wrote in the show sheet. Gosh, I hope not. I I really hope <laughs> yeah. not. Um, you know there are rule changes that have occurred over the last I'll say two decades in the NFL. Where if we were doing this this deep of data analysis that we do for DFS every year, we would certainly need to make huge adjustments. Um, like the early two thousands passing rule. If we were full on DFS at that time, we would have to make massive, massive changes. Um, we did see a decrease in holding penalties. Uh, over the last two seasons by a pretty significant amount. And there have been studies that show basically uh, if you're trying to get a first down, a holding penalty at any time is essentially catastrophic or on average catastrophic to a set of four plays resulting in a first down. So when you reduce the holding penalties, you would expect the per drive and per game efficiency of offenses to naturally increase. And sure enough, that's what we have happening over the last two seasons. So there is a slight change in, in overall per play efficiency when you look at the league wide, but I don't think we're making any drastic changes to how we uh, do rate stats or change our projections overall. We're still uh, basically working with the same NFLs we have in over the last, I'd say, three to five seasons. Yeah, I think um, I think it's an interesting question in terms of like, kind of what research we should be doing or how, how deep we should be going in into certain research topics. Um, we want to work smarter, not harder. Right. And, and we do have things that are kind of cheat codes. One of those being the Vegas lines, Vegas implied point totals and whatnot. Um, and if there are changes because of things like rule changes, uh, changes to scoring expectation because of rule changes, it's going to be captured in those things. Like the, these betting lines are super sharp, especially for NFL. Uh, and they're thinking about these things too, you know, so they're not going to let themselves, you know, whatever sports book isn't going to let themselves get smoked because they're not thinking about something. So we're, we're going to know pretty quickly what to expect. And, and we don't even have to try to figure it out. We have, we have the answers in front of us most of the time. Um, I, I do think that there is, this isn't answering the question, but I do think there's a penalty that, um, would be worth paying attention to. And that's tracking pass interference. Um, seeing if, if players are getting a lot of pass interference or, or a team has a lot of pass interference against them, we're going to miss some of the, the counting numbers, the targets, the air yards and things like that. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a huge difference, but I do think it is interesting to, to track pass interference and include it in your wide receiver research, kind of included as a target, included as air yards or whatever, because um, it could shift the numbers a little bit, uh, but I think it's worth looking at. Um, so thanks, Andy7 from Discord for that one. Uh, another Discord question from MG Choices. Uh, this is a great question. Advice for stepping up to higher stakes. Um, when should you level up? Um, or should you just keep grinding at lower stakes um, or wherever you're comfortable at? So basically this is asking, when do you take your shots? How do you move up in stakes? Well, uh, sorry if you hear my dog in the background, uh, but I think what, one of the things you have to, uh, one of the things you have to remember is that 
at the higher stakes, you're obviously going against the very best players. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the bottom line is the we do see uh, an increase in the cash line for a lot of these higher stakes tournaments. And I think there are even players who have the bankroll to only play high stakes tournaments. And you think, well, they would only focus on that. But what you see consistently is that they're still focusing on the edge that they can gain in the lower stakes games because they just find it to be a generally harder game. Uh, I saw this quote from uh, Osmo's Alex Baker. While only 82% of his entry fees were on contest $21 or more, those pr- those profits made up 50 per- 57% of his career profits. So obviously the goal is to get there. But you have to understand who you're playing against. You're just generally sharper. Uh, I just wrote down, if you're in that 333 Wildcat tournament on DraftKings, wildly popular, you're essentially saying, I'm ready to play against the very best players in this entire game. So you just need to be prepared for that. doesn't mean you can't be one of them. It just means that that is what you're up against. I still think there's a huge edge in playing these lower stakes games, even if you're ready for that high stakes uh, level. Yeah, um, that... The thing that I think a lot of people get wrong with moving up or, or, or bankroll management is a lot of advice you'll find in, in an article um, on any site is is kind of not tailored to, but like the assumption that you're on some super strict bankroll plan because it's your only income or you're like trying to go pro. And if that is the case, if you're trying to only do this for a living or um, you're, you're you have a reason to be really fearful of your, your risk of ruin, uh, then yeah, you should have a, a crazy strict bankroll plan, but most users are playing pretty low stakes or playing just with, um, expendable income, but I, I still think you should be smart about it. You still want to be able to afford to play as much as possible, right? If, if you can only afford to play two grand all year, um, you want to figure out how to best use that two grand. Uh, but you, you can be a little looser if uh, if it is just your expendable income and, and it's it's fun money for you um i, I kind of go back to like uh, uh when i used to play poker taking shots in poker is, is is very important um because obviously higher stakes you play the more money you're gonna make you can make a lot of money playing a million games at, at low stakes at dfs so it's a little different but i wouldn't be comfortable playing at a buy-in level uh regularly unless i had say like 20 25 buy-ins at that level but if i wanted to take a shot if once my bankroll got to 10 buy-ins for the next level, I would take a shot. And if I lost, say we're talking about like moving up to like a 5-10 game, if my bankroll gets up to say 10 grand, I'll, I'll take a shot. And if I lose a whole buy-in or two and it drops down, you know, to to, to eight buy-ins at that level, I'll go back to my smaller level. But never letting myself get below like the 20 or 25 buy-ins for, for my um, smaller stakes game that I regularly play. So know how much you want to be playing at a stake uh, and, and set up similar rules for yourself. If, if you have a hundred bucks and you're only playing $1 games, you know, maybe take 10 bucks and throw it at some $5 games and two $5 games and see what happens, see how you feel. Um, and then when you do hit now, Oh, now I can play these games regularly. Um, another thing you can do when you're moving up in stakes, you can move up in stakes without moving up in money. So obviously this is going to be higher variance, but if you're somebody that plays like a 20 max $5 game, uh, you can switch it up and go play a five max $20 game. So you're still only playing a hundred bucks and obviously it's going to be higher variance because it's easier to lose with um, all of your lineups with, with fewer lineups, but it's, it's a way to see what the games play like without spending money. You're not comfortable spending and a added bonus to that, depending on where you're at, it might result in you paying less rake, especially if you're like close to that $50 buy-in level. That's where we start seeing rake really drop off. Um, Mm -hmm. So taking a couple of weeks and doing something like that is is a useful way to, um, to move up in stakes. And when you are moving up in stakes, always be looking for, like I said, those rake drops and then look for overlay. If you're going to move up in stakes, make it as easy as possible on yourself and get that great structure when there's overlay. Um, And once you are into those games, Look at the players that are winning the games. Look for the names that you know and see what their lineups look like. And if you're doing something way different than them than you were at your lower stakes game, that's where you can start analyzing um, what you are are doing wrong. And I would suggest if you are somebody that is trying to be strict about your bankroll and you play cash games and GPPs, if you're going to have a week where you take shots, I would suggest 
lowering your percentage of money in play towards tournaments and upping your cash game mix if you're talking about moving up in stakes in GPPs. Um, because for that one week, it'll give you a, a little bit more cushion, right? If, if you're usually playing $50, say you have a 50-50 split, if you're usually playing $50 in cash games and then $50 at uh, $1 tournaments and you're going to move up to, to $10 tournaments, um, maybe just play three or four of those $10 tournaments this week and play 60 or $70 um, in cash in the week you're going to take a shot. And that'll give you a, it'll give you a little bit of, of a safety net or at least a, um, at least a psychological safety net. Um, so that, I think there's smart ways to move up and taking shots. And I think uh, what, what you and, and what Alex said makes a lot of sense. Um, this is a fun question from our boy, Jordan Vanek DFS. Jordan Vanek's going to be writing our GPP main slate write up this year over at four for four. Who's your Mount Rushmore of players that have won you money. And I knew we were going to both do the same thing. We couldn't just say players that won us money. We had to say players that lost didn't we? Yeah. I mean, the minute you think we always remember the losses uh, yeah. so much more than the, the dub, the W's, but uh, yeah, I had a good start to last season. And uh, one of them, the one of my really good picks early, I, forget what week it was i think four or five where todd Gurley had by far his best day as a falcon and i had just been just like knee deep in research and saw that he had broken a ton of tackles and though he, his yardage totals didn't look like anything spectacular he was going against the carolina team that had just been uh brutal against the against running backs in general and and he hit and then he turned to dust directly after that but it was a great start to my dfs year last year I do want to tell a story, as you said, about one of my worst beats. Uh, it was a situation where uh, basically just what we were talking about in the last question where, um, you know, we had been doing well per, for a few weeks, moving up in stakes. I entered some tournaments that I don't usually get a chance to enter and a ton of Josh Allen stacks against the Arizona Cardinals. As we know, great game to target so many fantasy points scored yeah but the ones that hurt the most to me and you know it's funny i had uh you know it was it during the height of november 2020 and all my buddies we had done all this work to to come hang out together and i showed him the phone what you know what we were working with winnings wise and that was the death knell right there because the minute i showed him the phone as the uh minutes wound down everyone knows the rest kyler throws up the hail mary <laughs> DeAndre Hopkins catches the point. catch of the year and the uh, the earnings plummet. It wasn't a horrible week, but it wasn't uh, anywhere near the uh, money I saw on the screen. That was never mine. Uh, you, the other one, I want people, to, yeah. a lot of people with PTSD are, are turning off the the show right now. <laughs> that was uh, the the worst beat, uh, and it's it stunk too because I had a lot of Kyler Hopkins stacks that just yeah, weren't in the that, in the run. That was, a, oh. that was a rough week for a lot of Josh Allen lovers like me. Yeah, and then I just got to say shout out to um, the 2019 Minnesota passing game who I just exploited in uh, <laughs> all sorts of matchups because they were basically priced per Mike Zimmer's reputation there for a while, and they had an atrocious secondary, and I was starting every quarterback against them and raking in money with like Brandon Allen in my starting QB spot, which obviously opened up a lot of options for other positions. Yeah, the uh, the my Mount Rushmore of players that have won me money, I would, I would say Eric Decker, Josh Allen, and then I, I have to give two two heads at a time for the other two spots. Uh, DJ and Le'Veon, uh, David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell, and then Josh Gordon and Jamal Charles. There was a year, I think it was 2016 with the Jets, where Decker was like, his price never moved, and you just played him in cash, and you won, and he scored a touchdown and got 100 yards. And it's still the only... The only sports jersey I own is a Josh Allen Jets. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Eric Decker Jets jersey. Uh, Josh Allen last year uh, took down two P GPPs with Allen. Uh, early in the season, obviously, uh, people weren't into Allen. It took a couple of weeks, and then he had the the dip after the. I think it was the KC game. Um, he just had a horrible game and everyone was like, mm -hmm. there's the Josh Allen we know. And they were excited to hop off the wagon. I stayed on it. Uh, when David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell were doing what they were when they were great. Um, they were the original CMCs. They were the one with the $9,000, $10,000 salaries. And everyone was trying to figure out which one to play. 
a lot of us were just playing, jamming them in together and being like, I don't care about find a way. That's right. Though that was a good, like six week stretch where I was like, just jam them in cash and you're going to win. Um, Josh Gordon, Jamal Charles week when Jamal Charles had his crazy, like, I think it was his five touchdown game. Oh, the best. As that that game, game. as that game was ending, Josh Gordon was, that's when Josh Gordon was having his crazy year. Um, and he was having a dud. It it was championship weeks for redraft league, but obviously we were playing DFS too. Um, he scored like a a 80 yard touchdown, like in complete garbage time. The the Browns were down by like 20, I think. So that was fun because I had both of them. And and that's when I, I was playing some small sites. There was a site that was a, um, it was fed by a sports betting book. Um, and they had a DFS site, a, a horse racing betting book. And they just had like DFS games, super small. And I was like buying up their whole lobby every single week. Cause they only had like <laughs> a couple thousand dollars worth of games to even play. Um, and, and that week I think I swept the entire site and I don't, I legit think they, they only functioned for like two more weeks after that. Um, so I'm sorry to whoever on that side. You bankrupted them. Games. Yeah. Um, but I got my bad beats too. I got um, Marvin Jones for touching a game, game against the Jets. That's when um, that's what Revis Island days. So it was like it's we started getting privy to like play wide receivers two versus the Jets. I played Muhammad Sanu for the Bengals and it was Marvin Jones that went off for four touchdowns. So I had the right read wrong player. Calvin Johnson against the Seahawks fumble on the one yard line. Oh, if he scores that touchdown, I'm leading in a live qualifier with nobody behind me that's even close and i obviously ended up not making a live qualifier but uh i I was literally an inch away from a qualifier and calvin fumbles at the goal line so that one is like it's i still get made fun of by people i was talking to like dfs buddies from that year they still give me the uh, did calvin fumble yet um so that's super fun for me brutal absolutely (laughs) brutal uh Question number seven, another Discord question from Megaron. Uh, definitely talked about this before in articles and podcasts, but it's a great question to uh, go back to. What analytics and stats are the most important when making your lineups, and what does your weekly process look like? Great question. First of all, thank you thank you to everyone for all these questions. These, these have been awesome so far, but I think this is an awesome question to think about because there are so many stats Mm-hmm. Right now, there are so many websites dedicated to just throwing metrics at you. And it can start to feel like like you get a little dopamine hit every time you learn a different yep. stat about all these players. And, you know, one of the things that we can help you with at 4 for 4 is we have these playbook series. I know that you're updating them right now, TJ, where we talk about what stats really matter, how far back to look at for certain stats that they get the most correlation to what we see in the future. Um, and I always... I forget the name of the study, but there was a, a very famous study done with uh, horse betters, horse racing betters done uh, a generation ago. And essentially they were given a series of races over the, a period of time. And in this study, they were given five stats that they could choose, any five stats. Then they did it with 10 stats. And then they did it again with 15 stats. And what they surprisingly found is that they saw no change in the better's ability to pick the winning horses after five stats. The 10 stat group and the 15 stat Mm -hmm. totally didn't matter. What did matter was the better's confidence in picking those things. So we can actually get lulled into this false sense of security when we get more metrics that necessarily confirm our priors about our feeling about a player, and we're really just doubling down on the things that we already knew. Here's the answer to your question, Megaron. I do have some specific stats for every position group that I really care about. I look at drive success rate, the ability to turn a drive into a touchdown, uh, because that's really what the NFL is all about. Um, Even if they're kicking a field goal, that means that they had some sort of failure point. Um, And then I use a a Bayesian updating process called, uh, or don't need to go into that, but I basically create true drive success rate just using Mm -hmm. the sample size that we have for that year. Uh, expected points added per play, a very popular metric among the analytics community, as well as completion percentage over expected. That gives you uh, an idea of a quarterback's per play and per pass efficiency. And as we know, uh, overall offense, their ability to score in the NFL, in the modern NFL, is necessarily predicated on the quarterback's overall efficiency. 
So before we care about anything else, is a team's quarterback going to be able to put them in position to score points consistently? It sounds easy, but there are certain stats that can get us there. Wide receiver and tight end, tried and true at this point. We're looking at air yard share, target share. I love unrealized air yards, including penalty yards. That's definitely something you can do. And, and there's also an expected points metric, which is really my favorite these days because that considers the situation of the game. Usually betting lines are included as well as down distance on the field. So that incorporates all these different elements into one distilled number. And if we look at all of the players, their fantasy points versus expectation versus the expected fantasy points model, as expected, is exactly on average 0.0. So that expected, so every player will eventually regress to that expected fantasy point mean. So we should create create that as our basis for all of our flex players. Uh, yeah, I, I do the same thing as you. I have certain stats that I look at for, for each position. A lot of the stuff you just mentioned is, um, available. If you're a four, four subscriber, we even have some of it for free, um, with our tools. Um, but there's, there's a lot of information that you can just get through your own research. I really like what you said at the beginning, because if you're double counting, um, yeah, that's all you're really doing is, is giving yourself more confidence. And really there's, if you aren't doing what we're doing, you don't have to make the content. Um, a lot of these stats that, that people are talking about or looking to your, whoever you trust to make projections. If you're looking at, at Vegas lines and play point totals, they're including all of these things in their research. And, and you talked about the playbook and we have all these numbers that are available going into the game just for quarterbacks. The, the article that just came out, nothing correlated higher with, a player's fantasy points than the four for four point projection. So like our projection, it takes all of these things into account. But if you do want to do your own research, I'm, I'm pretty on, on, in line with you with, with what I'm looking at quarterbacks. I'm looking at fantasy points per attempt to just kind of a quick, dirty way to, to figure out how efficient they are as passers. We already talked about implied point totals. I think something that is underrated, especially in, in, in tournaments where we're looking for where there could be wide ranges of outcomes is O-line D-line matchups, just because uh, that, that can obviously can be really good or bad either way. Um, but it can make teams that look like they're in a good spot end up being really bad. If, if obviously sacks lead to turnovers or defensive touchdowns um, and then ne neutral passing race for both teams uh, for quarterbacks. Again, that's kind of probably encompassed by something like an implied point total, but two teams that pass lots, obviously good for quarterbacks. Uh, Wide receiver, you pretty much covered it. The only other thing I might put in there is like end zone targets. And I, I run a metric card called touchdown expected value, um, which is basically kind of like a point expectation model that you talked about. Running backs, I'm always looking at the spread. Um, obviously, teams that are, are favored a lot are, are likely to be in positive game script. One, one metric that I like to mess around with that I, I don't rely on, but I think it's interesting way to find value. Um, people talk about uh, points per dollar. I like to look at... at uh, projected touches per dollar for running backs. Uh, that's a, a quick way just to find workload and and not um, potential scoring, which is obviously super, um, you know, can, can be very high variance. Um, and then defenses, O-line, D-line matchups. Again, I like looking at pressure rates over sacks because pressure rates are, are more consistent and reliable than sacks. And again, an, an opponent's neutral passing rate. This is actually one that doesn't get talked about a lot. I want a defense against an offense that throws a lot. A lot of people know you want a defense that's going to be ahead because the team is forced to throw. I want the team that's already throwing because that's more opportunities for sacks. Sacks are and and fumbles are, are going to be um, that pressure leading to turnovers and be a lot more reliable than like hoping for just random interceptions or something. So I want teams that are already throwing a lot when I'm looking for a defense to target. Yeah, well said. There. Uh... I think there is uh, an argument to be said, too, that there aren't a lot of great metrics for the offensive line and defensive line. So pressure rate is definitely one to consider. Also, you can find shootout uh, possibilities for two defenses who don't get a lot of pressure and can't stay off the field. So if you look uh, at defenses who have a very poor success rate or a very poor pressure rate, you can find sneaky shootouts that way as well. Nice. Um, quickly, what what is your what does your week look like? Like. Just tell us Monday through Sunday. How, how are you prepping? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote down in these notes that it's a highly defined but constantly refined weekly process <laughs> yeah. because I do take very seriously the idea of organizing a week. Mm -hmm. 
um, and making sure that I'm in the right mindset. Uh, what I call pockets of opportunity to be in my best possible mindset to make clear decisions. Because remember, this game is about making slightly better decisions than our opponents. We all have the same basic set of projections. We all even have access to what we think general ownership is going to be like if we're playing in a tournament like that. So we're working with the same details, really. So the only way to consistently get better is to create a process that outduels our opponents. So a lot of this uh, process is now uh, content for you guys on various websites. But ultimately, my uh, weekly turnover happens on Monday. So while I'm creating showdown lineups and I'm working on that slate, I'm also turning over the week and then I'm diving into a, a very consistent game by game research process on Tuesday and Wednesday every day. And then I'm carving down my player pool by Thursday. Usually Friday, I have a strong idea about what my uh, general lineups, what games and contests I'm going to play is done. And then usually Saturday is a wait day because there's mm -hmm. something injury wise that really it's a Schefter tweet that we're waiting for on Sunday, mm -hmm. Sunday morning. So I have found that Saturday is basically a day where I'll, uh, I'll actually focus on DFS learning in general, because I feel like there isn't actually much to be gained from the slate themselves. So if I can get in a strategy, strategy mindset, that's where I spend Saturday doing that. Sunday morning, I'm up early making lineups, just like everyone else here, getting them in for the main slate uh, right at 1 p.m. Eastern where I am. Yeah, uh, assuming we're just talking about main slate prep, obviously, if you're playing Thursday or Monday showdown, um, that's a little different. That's a short turnover prep. Um, you're probably just doing all of it that that day, uh, especially for, for Monday night games. Um, but for, for my main slate... Mondays is just my review and recap day. I go over my lineups, go over other people's lineups um, that, that were in the same contests as me, whether I had a good or a bad week, just to see where I might be slipping up. I think that's the most, probably the number one most overlooked aspect to DFS is people reviewing their game. Um, it's crazy important, and, and you learn a lot about yourself and, and what other people are doing. And, and um, Sorry to cut you off, TJ. Yeah, no, no. I, I think that if going back to a couple previous questions ago, if you're moving that to high stakes from lower yeah. stakes and you're not reviewing your play versus others, you're probably not ready yet. I yeah. Digress. Yeah. Yeah. And we will be, uh, we will be doing our own review every Monday. Uh, you and I will be reviewing our cash lineups cause we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be writing the cash articles. So we'll be doing a review every Monday. Um, we don't have the time lockdown yet, but it'll be sometime Monday afternoon. So if you're watching this now, we'll be having that, um, as a streaming show every week as well. Um, Tuesday's my research day. Just all the stuff we kind of just talked about with the positions. I'm literally doing research all day, Wednesday, Thursdays, I'm making content. So what you guys would consider research is is my job luckily so that's like I, I have to do the, the research anyway so i'm i'm giving i'm picking out all my favorite values and tournament plays um and and putting them on on virtual paper for you guys so i'm i'm basically picking my player pool on wednesdays and thursdays um friday is my game selection day I, i'm i'm i think it's really important if you are tracking your bankroll to be i like having my games selected um by you know by saturday day so i'm not i don't have to be thinking about that sunday morning i'll obviously leave some room to look for overlay and if i'm playing different slates leave some room for those um but i like to have my my um as many head-to-head select as possible i, I i'm usually saving some to select sunday morning because if you are playing mass volume head-to-heads it's it's probably wise to to wait um and look for weak players i think we talked about that last week but um definitely at least signing up for all of my tournaments on friday um saturday um i'm building all day um and tweaking ownership like own i think ownership even though we start putting it out on thursday i change it every single day but saturday is when i'm going to get a really good idea of ownership obviously something could change sunday morning but i i like to have my preliminary builds done i didn't say on monday i don't like doing the first look builds i, I think that clouds my judgment a bit for later in the week. I like to do all my research before I start building. Um, some people are different with that, but that, that's my process. Um, but Saturday I'll, I'll do, if my player pool has somebody that is on the injury report or waiting to hear news from, I'll, I'll build like a reserve lineup. So I just have just save it in the four for four lineup generator or something. So I'm not scrambling Sunday morning. If I am surprised, if, if it is surprise news, you know, we, there's nothing we could do about it. We just have to, you know, scramble. But um, I try to limit my my scrambling. And then Sunday, um, 
looking for overlay Sunday morning, obviously still getting up early and, and fixing whatever lineups I, I, I need to tweak. Um, but looking for overlay leading up to kickoff and then the day's not over. I, I need to be, I, I don't have my first beer until after the second slate of games because we need to be late swapping. If you're playing cash games, GPPs, mm -hmm. um, we'll probably have a whole theory segment on it. Um, we have old ones of the podcast. We have articles on it, but you have to be implementing late swap. That's when your week is over. Not when kickoff happens Sunday morning. Your week's over after your final late swap. Um, one more question, and, and then we'll get out of here. Can't guard Jimmy from Twitter. Uh, when is the kind of leads in from the last question? When's the best time to allocate for afternoon slates are you doing it with all of your other lineups or are you waiting until um if you're on the east coast waiting for the 1 p.m games to kick off before you enter 4 p.m games well i think the ones that get the answer right are really the, is the best time to do your research but that's too easy to say <laughs> yeah. well i i would generally say from a strategy standpoint anytime you're able to research or execute or do anything that helps your your play as a DFS player while the rest of your of the field isn't working, that's going to be plus EV time mm -hmm. for you. So yeah. you better believe that once people see those one o'clock kickoffs happen, they turn off their phones and computers and they switch mm -hmm. into uh, consumer mode. And there's absolutely no problem with that. But that is a time where you absolutely can be taking advantage of the field. You said it perfectly. There are times where Sunday afternoon, we're going to be making very specific strategic decisions between say two and 3 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and you need to be able to, first of all, have the process in place before you get to Sunday afternoon so that you can get those lineups switched and in quickly. So you using something like an optimizer can be incredibly helpful. In fact, I would say it's, it's really hard not to unless you only have say like one to 10 lineups that you truly can do by hand. But uh, I would say the anytime you're doing work while the others aren't, it's a pretty, it's a pretty advantageous thing to do. Uh, simple as that. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's one of the biggest edge and I, I think we already talked about this too. The smaller slates, there's some, some really big edges to be had because there just isn't a lot of content, not a lot of people paying attention to them. And, um, that, that 4 PM slate, uh, a lot of people, yeah, if they are building lineups, they probably already got a, a, a couple pops in them and, and aren't doing as, as good of a job as they should be. Um, and those are really good spots to to find an overlay um, in those those smaller afternoon slates because a lot of people forget, um, wanted to enter them, forget to enter them. Um, and, and a lot of times they'll just be some random games that pop up when the other ones fill um, that you can get overlay on. So I like to have most of my tournaments selected before the slate. But like you said, building during while I'm watching the game, which which can be annoying because you're missing some action. But I think it's a very plus EV move. And there's still a lot of news to be had between that one o'clock and four o'clock window. Um, still a lot of things to figure out. So definitely some uh, some advantages to all the things you talked about. I think it's a pretty good time going back to one of our first questions to take shots. If you're having a really good day, I'm not saying if you obviously aren't going to know if you've won yet, cause it goes down to the last kickoff, but you can get a pretty good idea if you're having a good day. I'm not saying that if you think you're going to win a thousand dollars to go enter a thousand dollar game, but if you think you're having a really good day and usually play a $5 contest, maybe play a $10 contest on, on the shorter slate. Um, I think that could be a good spot to take shots. Um, not a good spot to which my buddy, uh, Dan Gaspar, he, uh, Mr. Tuttle 5 on Twitter. Uh, he's over at Roto grinders now, but when we worked at fantasy insiders together, he would always tell us don't telk telk is tilt entering late contest. So basically don't chase your losses after a bad day on the short slates. That's, uh, uh, disaster waiting to happen. No telks. Um, so yeah, those are, uh, th those are my thoughts on that. Um, thanks to everybody for the question. That was a really fun episode uh, yeah. and, and, and led to some really great content. So, uh, Matt, that was great. Um, obviously, uh, thanks to all the listeners. Uh, we mentioned the discord. So if you sign up, you can get access to our four for four subscribers only discord. Uh, this is on YouTube right now. Obviously it will be on all podcast platforms uh, by tomorrow. If you're on iTunes, please rate interview. If you're on YouTube, please like, and subscribe. Uh, if you 
again, if you haven't signed up yet for 444 and you don't have a prize picks account, go to 444.com slash prize picks. And there's information on how to get a subscription for just $20. Uh, again, I mentioned discord, be sure to look for that. And for all of our preseason analysis over the next couple of weeks, uh, Tim Talmadge and Pat James have been crushing there. Uh, and, you mentioned quickly, Matt, that I'm working on the DFS playbook. That's in the strategy hub. Uh, tons of content that we just topics we just talked about, all covered in the strategy hub. Articles, old podcast, and then that playbook series will be um, updated by the end of the week. We have quarterbacks up now. All of the rest of the positions will be up by probably by the next time uh, we record this podcast. Next week, going to our permanent. 3 p.m. time slot on Fridays. So I think we're only going to get busier with the, with the season coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, that Friday time slot is going to be one of the most important pieces of content we do all week. Uh, so I'm really excited for that. Uh, hopefully next week we might have a special guest for you guys, uh, but we'll talk about that leading up to the week. If you want more of us, follow us on Twitter. 444 is at 444 football. You got Matt at Draftaholic. I'm at TJ Hernandez. We will talk to you guys next week.